we celebrate the presence and power of the Lord Jesus in our lives, and we bow our knees always to Him as Lord. And so we are gathered here as people who call Jesus Lord, and He is Lord over heaven and earth, and He is Lord over the seas and over the oil in the seas. And as I was sitting there thinking about the Lordship of Christ, it occurred to me that we ought to pray. We have a man in our church who is involved in a proposal that will be presented to BP tomorrow about uh, building a barrier to this oil slick in the Gulf that's coming in toward our marshes. And we do not want this oil in the marshes of Louisiana. So we need to pray for that effort, for the effort to, to contain this disaster, and for our new mayor, Mitch Landrieu, who was sworn in this week. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, we come before you because nothing is too hard for you. And you encourage us to ask in faith believing because nothing is impossible with you. And so, Lord, all of our faith is in you as we come to you with this oil spill in the Gulf and this well that is still pouring thousands of gallons of oil into our Gulf. Lord, we pray that you would make a way to contain this disaster and to keep it out of the marshes. And, Lord, that we might be able to uh, get it capped and cleaned up. Lord, we pray for wisdom for those who are working even now. Think about Pete Zahner, who's been out there with a crew for days and days. God, give that man strength as he seeks to help his crew contain this disaster. Think about those who will meet this very afternoon and then make a presentation tomorrow. That, God, you will give wisdom to these who see a way to protect the marshlands around the mouth of the Mississippi. And God, we commit this need unto you. We pray for Mitch Landrew as he has now assumed the role of mayor in our city. And God, we truly believe in our heart that you want to stir this city by your Holy Spirit. And God, you have prepared so many hearts through the disasters in the past to receive your word. And Lord, we want to be faithful at this time. And God, we believe that you can intervene on our behalf, even in the structures of government. So we pray for efficient and effective government in the uh, term of Mitch Landrieu and for wisdom for him as he seeks to harness the resources, both state and national, as well as local, to bring to bear on the healing and progress in our city. God, we commit this need unto you with great faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We're turning to Proverbs 31. It is a traditional passage for Mother's Day. It is the poem of the virtuous woman. It concludes the book of Proverbs. It is beautiful. And I will tell you, it is not simply for women. It is also for men. These are virtues that ought to be displayed in the lives of all God's people. Somebody said, well, who is this woman? We don't know. It seems that her husband is writing the poem. But some people think not. Some people think this is P. 
penned by Solomon about the woman he never met. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Somebody asked me about that this week. And I said, what a mess this man's home life was. You know, his wives turned his heart away from God as smart as he was. He lost the battle in his home. And possibly he did never actually meet a woman like the one described in this passage. But I have met them, and you have met them, godly women, women of virtue. There is one woman described whose name we have in the Bible with the term from verse 10, a woman of noble character. And it is the term that Boaz uses to describe Ruth. Everybody knows, Boaz says to her, that you are a woman of noble character. We have many Ruths here in this room today. Women of noble character. Now, I have talked to two or three women about this message today, and they have said to me, that has always been the ideal for me. Proverbs 31, that's the kind of woman I want to be. Well, I think it is a surprising description coming out of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, that patriarchal society, and I believe that you will find it surprising as well. And let me read it for you, Proverbs 31 Verse 10, a wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still dark and provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it, and out of her earnings she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable, and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with dignity and strength. She can laugh at the days to come. 
She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Now, all I can do with these 22 verses is pick out some things that, to me, are core values in the life of this virtuous person and recommend them to you, my friend, as a value to implement in your life. And I have five of them. And the first is eager hands. Verse 13 she works with eager hands. I see this woman as a person who is busy. The idea of eager is delight and pleasure. She loves it. She delights in the work she does. It is not a drudgery to her. And work should not be a drudgery to you either. Work is a gift from the Lord. And we ought to work with our hands as the Scripture says, and considered a privilege and honor to be able to do so. She feels that way about her work. She works with delight and eagerness. She's not afraid of manual labor. Her work is hard. She does her husband good and not harm. So the work that she does always brings him good. All the days of their lives, she is working to bring good to her husband, to her household, and to her children. She does good even when people don't appreciate it. Even when the children are too young to be grateful or understand how much her labor costs. She does good to her husband when he is gone. When he is off doing his work himself. She works good for all those folks around her. This woman takes the initiative in a way that to me is amazing, particularly in this society and for this culture. She is out there purchasing things. She is looking through the flax and the wool. She is feeling them with her fingers. Now, how important that is. This woman has some... Uh, specificity about what she wants to accomplish. She knows what she's after. When I was a boy, we helped shear the sheep, and we always separated the adult wool from the lamb's wool. And I said, why do we do that? And the rancher said, because the lamb's wool and the kid wool from an Angora goat will bring almost twice as much money at the market. And he said, feel this. And so I felt the adult wool, and then I felt that lamb's wool, and it's true. 
there is a very clear difference between the two. And it is an illustration of a person of character who has an eye for what is right and the feel for what is best. It's something you develop. You and I might not be able to sit down and feel the flax or the wool like this woman does immediately, but we learn to do so. It is part of the task of being a person of virtue and character. She takes the initiative not only in this regard, but she takes it in regard to buying fields, for heaven's sakes. She's a woman of commerce. She makes sure that her trading is profitable, stockbrokers. All right? She's out there buying commodities, according to this poem. Now, when I read about this woman, I think, what part of the world does she occupy? of her world. She must be a woman of nobility, maybe of royalty. She must be part of the ruling family. And yet she is not sitting at home simply. She is busy in her world, taking the initiative, involved in real estate, buying property, planting a vineyard, creating a business. This is the kind of woman that's being praised in this poem. So women... The Bible in this poem turns you loose in your world to be creative, innovative, and to take the initiative. To look out on your world and say, how can I make this place a better place to live in? And how can I support my family and and do it well in this world in which I live? Now, this woman takes the initiative in different dimensions of her life. She anticipates disaster and trouble that may come. She understands there's going to be dark days as well as days that are sunshiny. And she lays up for those days. She prepares for them. She has a tenderness of heart about her. I love that she is described with eager hands. And that is throughout the poem. But I also love that she is described with open arms. That's the second of these core values that I would speak to you about. She is not simply somebody who is busy, industrious, and taking the initiative. But she opens her arms to the poor. Let me tell you something about these arms of hers. They are strong. All right? I already told you she's not afraid of manual labor. I think if you saw this woman's biceps... She's got some muscles, all right? She could even be buff, okay? She's got strong arms. She's out busy in her world. But she opens those strong arms to the poor. Do you see that verse? It is a key verse in the description of this woman of character in verse 20. Now, I want to recommend verse 20 to you, men and women, as a dimension of virtue that is neglected often in families and in the human heart. Not everybody, maybe not everybody in this room, sees opening their arms to the poor as a virtue. Some people consider it weakness. Some people consider it folly. I have met with a group of people here not too long ago 
who live in a dog-eat-dog world and suppose that the world is about the survival of the fittest. And if these people are poor, it is their fault. They need to get up and get a job. And no, I'm not going to help them with my hard-earned salary. I'm not giving it away to somebody who's not working. That is an attitude that you can have and that some people have. I drove a man through the Ninth Ward, and he said to me, observing the poverty, why don't these people get a job? You know, you could be right. It's possible that these women, that this woman is opening her arms to people who ought to be working. It's also possible that in many instances, you misunderstand the trap and the depth and the devastation and hopelessness and despair of the poverty they are in. Consistently in Scripture, generosity to the poor is a virtue. It's a dimension of noble character. Jesus describes only three specifically religious exercises in the Sermon on the Mount, his longest sermon. He recommends prayer. He talks about fasting. And he talks thirdly about the giving of alms to the poor. We live in a generation of great prosperity. We are the wealthy in the world. The wealthier we get statistically, the stingier we get. Are you aware of this? That as your income goes up, the percentage which you give to the poor shrinks. And to all nonprofit organizations, it shrinks. You would think, and some of you are even saying in your mind, I am working hard because one of these days I want to have enough money to help people in need. But I don't have enough now. Let me suggest to you, immediately, if you would like to be a person of noble character, that you begin now to cultivate the virtue of generosity. It looks good on you. It's beautiful on you. That open heart and open arms remind us of our Savior who loved us when we didn't deserve it and cared for us when we thought we had no need and ran after us when we ran away from him. In our poverty, he came to us with his love and sacrifice and laid down his life on our behalf. Your open arms, your generous spirit, your care for the less fortunate, looks beautiful on you. Now, there are two categories of people to whom she opens her arms. The poor, those who have no money, and the needy, a word for those who are afflicted, overlooked. 
the castaways, the dispossessed. One of the things about this virtuous woman is that she sees the needy. She knows when there's somebody in her life who needs her time, she pays attention. Somebody that's grieving, somebody in sorrow, somebody hurting, somebody needing her presence. And she achieves this level of moral excellence because she's paying attention and her heart is soft to those in need. I was having our Wednesday meal with a group of ladies in our church. I noticed that I was one, I was the only man at a table of eight people Wednesday night when we ate here in a fellowship hall. And the lady sitting around that table lost everything in Hurricane Katrina. You know what they were talking about? Those poor families in Nashville who lost their homes. And what a trying time they were experiencing. And it was their concern and compassion for those families in Nashville that prompted my writing of the article, which is today in the Times-Picayune, about the mothers of New Orleans. The mothers here who helped us gut houses when their houses were still in ruins. Has God taught us about generosity through the ravages of Katrina? I think we have learned that disaster and trouble and need come upon us all. And I predict one day, thou self-sufficient, self-made man, one day you will long for the care that someone else must provide. And if you have closed up your heart to those in need, you may find it hard to find a loving touch yourself. Sometimes very generous people in the church will say, oh, we've suffered a loss and the church has just turned out and I have meals and the food is everywhere and I just can't believe the generosity and I say to that dear saint you remember that verse about casting your bread on the water and one day it will return to you everybody in this room can practice the virtue of generosity. It is the antidote for greed. It will break the grip of greed upon your heart to open your arms to the poor. Now, everybody in the room also struggles with the balance between 
earning and making a living and making progress and having storehouses and caring for your family in the finest way that you can and the generosity that the Bible requires, okay? I don't want you to give up on generosity because you can't get that balanced in your mind. There will always be tensions there. There will always be questions about how much to give and and how much to earn and how much to keep for myself. That's not something that just resolves itself with a formula from Scripture. But what you do learn in Scripture is that people of virtue are hardworking and industrious, and sometimes, like this woman, they are wealthy, and they have much. And also that people of virtue are generous, and their hearts pour out to others. And if you say, what is generosity? I point to you, I point out to you the tithe, which is in Scripture, which is a tenth of that which they earned as a standard, as a reminder of a substantial gift that God called for from his people. She opens her arms to the poor, and she has a ready laugh. I like that description of this woman. Did you read it? Look at verse 25. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. Now, I love to hear my loved ones laugh, all right? Do you know laughter is perplexing to to biologists? They're still trying to discover why people laugh, and not just people. Did you know that mice laugh? That may be a revelation to you. I'm not sure what it means. They actually tickle one another. What do you get from that? You get to laugh. What is laughter? We're not sure. We're not sure about it. There are two things, though, about this woman's laugh that I think are true, okay? She has a ready laugh. She laughs at things to come. Number one, she laughs at things to come because she has done everything necessary to prepare for the future. Now, you can't fully prepare for the future. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. You can't anticipate every eventuality and circumstance of life, can you? But you can get ready as best you are able, and that is true about her. And when people say to her, ooh, the future's coming, she just can laugh because she's ready. She's prepared. She's got the clothing for the winter. She has the food in the closet, and she's ready. She's done her due diligence. But another reason I think that she can laugh is because she's trusting in the Lord. And sometimes God laughs. When people stand up on their little pedestals and shake their hands at God, sometimes he just kind of has to laugh. Psalm 2 says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh at our protest that our measly rebellions is just humorous to him. I guess you'd have to be there, you know. And I think there's a way in which this woman, when they say, ooh, about the future. Does anybody do that in here, by the way? 
How can you bring children into a world like this? Well, this is the same world we've had for a long time. And people have been doing it for generations. Let's not be too scared, all right? Let's not be fearful. Let's not be unbelieving. You can't live your life on the disaster plan. We all learned after Hurricane Katrina, at some point you got to stabilize. You can't always be expecting the hammer to fall. You can't live your life on doomsday. If you do, you just pull out of your world, and then what good are you? There are Christians that have done that. You know, they just pull themselves out of the world. They barricade themselves in a cave somewhere, and they wait for the end to come. You think that's what God wants? That's not what this woman has done. This woman is fully engaged and involved in her world. She's out there in her world trying to do good and care for the poor and care for her family. She's not afraid about the merchants and the real estate and the trading and the commodities. She's busy in her world, and so should you be as a person of virtue and character and excellence. Don't barricade yourself off and don't live your life in fear. Too many of us are doing that. We're just afraid of everything. We're afraid of tomorrow. We're afraid of what's going to happen. And we live in fear. I don't see that as a quality of this woman's character. Instead, I see when somebody says, Woo, the world is going to fall apart. She just kind of chuckles. Why would you do that, woman of virtue? Why do you laugh at things to come? Because she knows the one who holds the future. She has confidence in the God who made it all. And here's what I want you to do. This is the biblical stance on doomsday, okay? You just trust in the Lord. He created seed time and harvest, summer and winter. He created the cycles, and he will keep them going as long as he pleases and you just trust him every day you get up and if somebody tries to frighten you about the future you can give a chuckle too and say I know the Lord who created it all he saved me and I'm in his family there's a door in his mansion with my name on it and there's a place at his table with my name on it and nothing scares me it's like trying to say to Lazarus after Jesus raging from the dead, they want to kill you, Lazarus. There's a whole poem entitled, Lazarus Smiled. Lazarus smiled. We're going to kill you, Lazarus. We don't want you following Jesus. He just smiled. He'd been there, done that. He couldn't scare that man anymore. She laughs at things to come. Because she has a confidence in the preparation she has made and the God in whom she put her trust. She also has faithful speech. Now, faithful speech, I want you to, to uh, note this. It's, uh, it's verse 26. Faithful speech is made from two words, Torah and Kesed. Okay? Torah is what? The law. Kesed is what? Kindness. 
loving kindness. Now here is her virtue that is on her tongue. It is the law of kindness. It's like she ate a blue snowball. And all her mouth is colored with this blue snowball. What's on her tongue? It's the law of kindness. That's what's on the tongue of this woman of virtue, this woman who excels them all. Her tongue is blue with the law of kindness. Want to be a person of virtue? Turn your tongue blue with the law of kindness. Let the law of kindness be on your tongue. She speaks and people listen. I don't know that we, that she is somebody who talks a lot or talks a little, but when she talks, people listen. They want to know what she says. There is wisdom in her words. Now, part of her communication is her laugh. That's a way of saying something. And we communicate with laughter. But we also communicate with faithful instruction and wisdom. She's a woman who thinks before she speaks. And when she speaks, she speaks faithfully. If everybody in the room would put the law of kindness on your tongue, the marriage would be healthier. The family would be happier. The workplace would be more pleasant if the law of kindness covered our tongue. So before I open my mouth, I remember the law of kindness. Faithful speech, that fourth quality of the virtuous woman. And the fifth is she fears the Lord. That's how the chapter ends up. The poem goes on about all of these virtues which she possesses, and it culminates with, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That is, she honors God. Do you fear the Lord? Say, what do you mean? The word fear is for respect and honor and reverence. It is not so much that you are afraid of God, is that you have a deep and abiding respect for Him. You are in the house of worship. And in this house of worship, we express our love and respect and reverence for the God who made us and gave His Son to save us. Virtue begins with the fear of the Lord. The scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You say, what does that mean for me? It means that you would respect all that God has done for you, that you would reverence him as king. He has provided for your salvation through his son, Jesus, who died on the cross for your sin. The Bible says this is God's plan. This is God's way. He sent his promised one, his anointed one, his son Jesus. This is what God has done for you. And your first act of worship is to commit your life unto Christ, to receive him as Savior and receive forgiveness of sin through his name. 
This is how we are saved. This is how we become part of God's family. And it is our first act of worship, humbling ourselves, knowing that all of these virtues, if we possessed them all, they would not save us. Because fundamentally, it is bowing before the Lord who loves us, which brings our salvation. And your humble surrender of heart to Christ is the first step toward wisdom and excellence. Have you done it? Does Jesus own your heart? Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, we pray today that you would call us unto yourself. Lord, we pray for those who may not have ever trusted Jesus as Savior, that today would be the day, this Mother's Day, when they give their heart to you and humbly surrender their life to you, knowing that you alone can save not all their good deeds, but only you through grace and faith. And Lord, we pray today that you would call us all to yourself and that we would be people who follow Jesus in virtue and quality of character and generosity and strength, diligence and courage. Lord, do your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.